bow our head for the pastoral prayer. God, as we come before you, uh, we want to thank you that you are a good God, that we get to abide with you, we get to be with you forever if we have trusted in Jesus. And God, I pray that we would remember the good gifts you have given us. And tonight, as we talk about the gift of sex and what that means in terms of relationships and the gospel, I have several things I want to pray for tonight. One, God, I just want to pray for mature and open ears. Uh, This is such a difficult topic. It can feel like an awkward topic for so many people. And for many of us, part of the reason it's awkward is because we've never had someone as a Christian honestly talk to us about this topic, about this good gift you've given us. And so God, would you help us fight off all of the distractions Satan might try to throw before our eyes, all of, all of the awkwardness we might try to portray into distraction, and God, would you help us tune in to see the beautiful gift that you have given us. But God, I also want to pray because I know that this topic of sex is one that in fact just brings on a lot of shame for a lot of people. This is one of those topics that if you've grown up in church, you're used to only hearing about it from a really negative perspective, from the perspective of the sin that we have in our past, from the perspective of the mistakes that we have made. Or maybe we have shame and guilt in this wrongful way because someone has actually abused us. They have taken God's good gift and they have used it in the wrong way. They have twisted it like Satan does. And we were the victim of that. And so this topic is just hard for us to engage in. And so God, I want to pray for those different groups of people. I want to pray for those that are struggling actively right now with sexual sin. God, would you help them go before you to confess their sin? Would you give them freedom from the bondage of pornography or uh, a wrongful relationship with someone that is not their spouse? Would you help them break the chains of sin? God, we know that if we would lean in, the Holy Spirit can give us the power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the Holy Spirit can give us power to overcome. And so God, I pray that for my friends, guys and girls here tonight, stuck in the bondage of pornography, stuck in the bondage of sexual sin. And God, would you help them fight temptation and see that sex is a good gift meant for a very specific context. But also, would you remind them that sexual sin does not mark us out forever? It doesn't It doesn't cast us away from all hope of grace, but actually, that if we would confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God, would we live in the gospel hope that we've already talked about tonight and we're going to continue to talk about tonight, so that if Satan comes in and throws our sin in front of our face, we would be reminded that it should actually just point us back to the cross. Because that same sin that Satan puts before us, those mistakes that have plagued us, the skeletons in our closet, they are not greater than the blood of Jesus, and they are things that we can be forgiven for. And so it's Satan's accusations just remind us of the cross and point us back to the hope we have in Jesus. And God, for those that have been abused and have experienced sexual trauma, God, would you minister to them? You tell us in the Psalms, God, that You are close to the brokenhearted, and you bind up their wounds. You heal them. God, would they feel a special sense of your nearness and love tonight? Would you help turn the gift that has been turned into a curse in their life and turn it back into a gift for them? God, would you bring healing in their life? They are not the sum total of the things that people have done to them at all. 
In your eyes, they are your sons and daughters that you love dearly. They're not defined by the things people have done to them. They're defined by what you, Jesus, have done for them at the cross and in creation. I pray that that spirit of hope and healing would just fill throughout this room because there are many folks in this room. There are a number of folks that in some way have been hurt sexually. They don't have to have shame. And God, we pray that they would know that there are people here that they can talk to and that they would feel the experience of the healing of Jesus. God, I want to close this prayer by just, again, thanking you for the good gift of sex that you have given us. And I pray that we would walk away from tonight with a new view of sex. Maybe this is the first time we've ever heard someone spend time to actually tell us how good this gift really is and the context that it is meant for. And that we would see all of the beautiful ways it pictures the gospel, it pictures your love for us. And I pray that this would be just a time at the end of worship, as weird as that may sound for some of us, that we would remember that you are a good God, but ultimately, God, sex is not the God of our lives. You are. Let us not confuse the gifts with the gift giver. So we pray that we would come away more in awe of you and more thankful for the good gifts you have given us. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So tonight, we are going to dive into the very final message of our fall, excuse me, summer series. We're going to jump into the fall here in a couple weeks. But uh, we've been going through this series on relationships. And we, over the course of this series, we've talked about the, the, the Bible's vision for God as the creator and example for us in all of our relationships. We have talked about the Bible's radical vision for singleness. We've talked about the, the biblical wisdom for dating. And then we split up guys and girls for a couple weeks to have more personal conversations about relationships. And after that, we spent a couple weeks reflecting both on the theological and practical sides of marriage. And just real quick, I, just, I, I didn't do this last week, and this was my mistake. Can we just give a round of applause for Jay and Jane and Lake and Ellie and Eli and Paige, real quick? <clears throat> they did a great job with that panel and that teaching, and it is up online now. Um, and so you can hear, we're, I think we're totally up to date in the series for podcasts. So be sure, go back and listen to it. There's so much wisdom in there. Last week, we talked about the Bible's teaching on divorce. And uh, as we did so, we did some Q&A and just talked through that vision. And tonight, we are going to close out our message part of the series by talking about what the Bible has to say about sex. And so before we really get into the meat of the message, I just want to offer a few words of preface. First, my ask of you all is that you would be mature listeners. For some of you, the moment you just heard the topic, you're like, oh, I wish I could just walk out without being so awkward right now. Uh, but my ask for you is that you would lean in, you'd be mature. I realize, and I mentioned this in the pastoral prayer, for some of us, this, this topic is awkward because we're not used to having it talked about. The only time we hear about sex is from music or jokes or in some crude capacity, or we just think of mistakes we've made in the past. But many of us have never had someone just lovingly teach us what the Bible has to say on this topic. And um, so that I just would ask you just be mature, lean in. And um, related to this, and maybe this will be relief for you, this message will look different than normal. Normally we would have table talk back and forth over the course of the message. We're going to have no table talk tonight, and it's all my fault 
because I will confess, I spent all week trying to think of questions that would not be totally weird to talk about at tables, and I could not think of any. So uh, I want to save all the new people here tonight or just table co-ed tables where I'm not even sure the right way I could ask a question that would be appropriate to talk about. So just all my fault, but hopefully we'll get out of touch early tonight because of that. Second, uh, I, I would also say this. Um, I want to explain why we're not going to talk about certain topics over the course of this message. And I want, to, I want you guys to know my heart in this so that you... You don't read into my omissions here. I am not going to spend much time at all talking about sexual sin or sexual abuse tonight. And to be clear, those omissions are not because I think those topics are unimportant. I think both topics are vitally important. But you can find a thousand sermons or messages on those topics from other churches and and this church. And rightly so. Uh, I would actually imagine that for most of you, if you've ever heard about sex in in the life of church or in a sermon, it's been about sexual sin probably or dealing with sexual abuse. You've probably heard that sermon a few times. Uh, And so I want to change the perspective tonight. Many of us, again, have only heard essentially negative or guilt and shame-ridden messages about sex in the church. And if you've ever heard a positive thing about sex in the church, it's probably been rare and it's probably weird. Like usually the youth pastor saying that he has a smoking hot wife. That's probably the closest thing you've heard to a positive statement about sex. Uh, So I promise I will not talk to you about my smoking hot wife tonight. I promise. Um, So uh, my goal tonight is simple. I have one single point in one sense. And it's this. I want you to walk away with a positive biblical as little weirdness as possible, biblical view of sex uh, tonight. I want you to hear actually a really joyous explanation of the good gifts of sex. And in order for us to hear everything I'm saying in the correct way, I have a working assumption. So every time you hear me use the word sex, I am talking about sex in the context of marriage between one man and one woman. So I'm not going to just, I'm not going to say that every time before I make a statement. So just know when I talk about sex as a good gift, I mean sex in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible forbids all other sexual behavior. And as I hope you'll see tonight, the Bible's denial of sex outside of marriage is not because God is a killjoy. It is the opposite. The Bible calls for sex exclusively in the context of marriage because it's the means to the most joy and the most pleasure in sex. And so I hope you will see that as we continue on. And so I think this is the perfect place for us to go ahead and dive into our topic. Again, like I said, many of us have grown up believing that God is boring and that Satan is actually the fun one. We've grown up thinking that Christianity is just about following some rules and putting off all pleasure in this life. But this is fundamentally unbiblical, and I cannot stress that enough. It is fundamentally unbiblical, and I hope you will see that very clearly tonight. When we say things like, this food tastes as good as sin, or this thing actually feels sinfully good, we show that we have a fundamental misunderstanding about one of the most basic facts of the universe. Contrary to popular misconception, pleasure was God's idea, not Satan's idea. Pleasure was God's idea, not Satan's idea. And C.S. Lewis explains this beautifully in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters. And maybe some of you already know where this quote is going. It's so famous, but it is so good. Just for those who have not read The Screwtape Letters, this is a book written from the perspective of demons. So everything in this quote is flipped. You need to know that. And in the book, a senior devil named Screwtape is writing letters to a junior devil named Wormwood. 
explaining to him how to tempt human beings. And in one of those letters, the demon screw tape says this. Catch this. Never forget. Remember, he's writing this to another demon. Never forget that when we are dealing with anything that is pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And then catch this. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Tell me that's not a description of pornography or sexual immorality. And he closes the quote by saying this. It is more certain, and it's better style, to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what really gladdens Satan's heart. So catch what he's saying. God is the one that created pleasure. God is not a killjoy. He's actually the author of joy. And sex is one of the clearest examples in all the universe of this. Believe it or not, God gave us the good gift of sex before the fall and before sin ever entered the world. Think about that. He gave us sex before sin ever entered the world. Genesis 2 reminds us of this when it says this. So the Lord God caused the deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And when the Lord God made the rib, he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And the man said this. This one, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Before the fall, before sin entered the world, there was marriage and there was sex. These things do not have sinful origins. These good gifts and pleasures are from God before sin ever entered the world. And this one flesh union in the context of marriage was meant to be a source of unspeakable joy. Just think about Adam's words when he first sees his new wife, Eve. He says this again, just feel the energy and excitement he has. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for she was taken from man. Think about that. He is not just excited that he has another human being to hang out with. And sure, that's part of it. But he's also standing in front of his wife naked and looking at the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. No matter if she's the only other woman he's ever seen. He's still looking at her and he is in awe. He's wonderstruck. He is suddenly feeling feelings he never knew existed. And I imagine his jaw dropping as he's saying all of those words. Adam's excitement at this moment is not merely communal, it's also sexual which is why the very next verse after his statement talks about the one flesh union of a husband and a wife. And again, you know, we may chuckle at what I said a second ago about Eve being the most beautiful woman Adam has ever seen, even though she's the only woman he's ever seen and the only woman that's ever existed. But in actuality, 
there is a sense in which this is exactly how God intends for us to feel on our wedding night. There's a sense in which on our wedding night, as we look upon our spouse naked for the very first time, we should be exclaiming in awe like Adam of their unspeakable beauty. And I remember this exact feeling on my wedding night. And just to be clear, I'm not going to tell you any more details about my wedding night. I promise. I promise. My wife would shoot me. She's not here for a reason tonight. She's like, I'm not coming when you're talking about sex. That's weird. But I do remember, just the only thing I will say is, I remember when I first looked upon my wife in that kind of Edenic moment, I remember thinking she is the most beautiful woman I have ever seen, and she is all mine. And I can't imagine being with anyone else. I don't want to be with anybody else. To be like naked and unashamed to the best of our ability at that moment, that's like a beautiful thing. Because there are so many ways in which your wedding night and, and the gift of sex really is trying to get us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I mean, it was almost as if on that night I could have said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, at last. That's what that moment is supposed to feel like. It's supposed to be beautiful. I wasn't on. That is precisely how God intends for us to feel. And here's the in, in the midst of all the jokes and the nervousness, I do think we often miss just how sacred our wedding night is truly meant to be. In the moment, many of you will surely not understand how sacred the wedding night is, and I didn't either. Your hormones and your nervousness are going to be raging too much for you to feel the full weight of the sacredness and beauty of that moment. But nonetheless, despite all of the giggles, despite all of the non-Photoshop body parts, despite all the rookie performances, the inexperience, and the lack of a Hollywood finish, it will be a sacred moment. Because in that very first moment of intimacy, you will have become one with your spouse. And you will have officially left your father and your mother and cleaved to your spouse. And in that moment, you will actually seal the covenant of your marriage with your spouse. There's a real sense, biblically, you are not married until your marriage is consummated. That's a covenant seal of your marriage. That's why adultery is so serious. And in that moment you will also experience kind of the ultimate version of vulnerability with your spouse. And if things go according to God's intentions, it will be because you have slowly, over the course of your dating relationship, become more and more vulnerable with that person until when you are standing before them naked and, and as best you can, unashamed, it's because there's a sense in which you've been naked with them at every other point emotionally, with your family, with all, all of other parts of your life, so that it is finally consummated in a physical way. That's sacred. It, you finally know your spouse to the fullest extent in one sense. That's why often in Scripture, the Bible will talk about sex as knowing your spouse. It's say Adam knew Eve. Well, the Hebrew, and even when the Greek is using this, this is like a really intimate kind of knowledge. It's not meant to be just merely sexual. It's more than that. This is like an intimate knowledge of someone, an intimate and just steadfast love for them. It's why the very same Hebrew word can be used about God for his people. He has this intimate knowledge of you. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. He has a steadfast love for you. He knows you better than anyone else knows you, even than you know yourself. And he loves you. That is part of the sacredness of, of your wedding night and that Edenic moment. And that moment's also sacred because in that moment, as you look at your spouse, you will realize that everything you see, all of them, every part of their body is yours and yours alone. And every part of your body is theirs. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 4, tell us this. 
says this, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Every part of your spouse suddenly becomes yours, and every part of you suddenly becomes your spouse's because you're one. But more than that, and more importantly, it isn't just that their body is yours. It's that their heart and their soul and their mind are yours too. And your heart and your soul and your mind are theirs. This person is now your person and no one else's, and just as you are their person and no one else's. At that moment, every other person on the planet is forever off limits. And that's not a reduction of joy, but actually the increase of joy, because it's the only way to have supreme joy and unashamed sex. To know your spouse is uniquely and only and forever yours is amazing. And that's part of what makes it special. So take Proverbs 5, verses 15 to 21. It makes this very point. It says this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful joe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Believe it, that's in the Bible. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And in the act of sexual union, that one flesh union, your body even affirms this marital exclusivity down to a chemical level because your body, when you have sex with someone else, releases chemicals that bond you to that person. This is just a basic scientific fact. And what's interesting is, in our one-night-stand world, that's a really frustrating thing. It's why breakups are a lot harder if you're intimate with someone, because you were never meant to break up. But this is not a frustrating fact of, of scientific reality. This is like God's wisdom on display, because he is bonding you together with that other person so that they would be yours forever and you would be theirs forever. It's this beautiful, beautiful beautiful bonding to say this person is mine forever and all others are off limits same with our love with jesus when we become part of the bride of christ we are saying all other gods all other idols they are off limit because jesus you are my one and only it's a beautiful picture we see in sexual union on our wedding night and lord willing many other nights to follow we will have this sacred experience where we actually get to push back the effects of the fall and sin in the world and Satan's attempts to thwart God's plans. After the very first ceremony in human history, Genesis 2.25 says, both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. Imagine what it would be like to be naked and unashamed. Many of us can't possibly fathom that. Whether we're married or not, because of all the pressures of social media and pornography and otherwise, we can't imagine what it would be like to be naked and unashamed, let alone in front of another person. 
we can't fathom it. And while part of our shame actually comes from the effects of sin in the world, a significant part of our shame actually comes from a lack of self-esteem. We're worried about what others will think of us. We're worried about how we will measure up both literally and figuratively. But think about the way the husband and the wife of Song of Songs speak of one another. Think about the confident, erotic, and yet beautiful words they say to one another. The two of them almost seem naked and unashamed. It's almost like their sexual love is a reversal of the curse of the fall, especially since for much of that book they're actually in a garden. If we had more time, uh, we could actually talk about all of the gospel themes in the Song of Songs, how it's a reversing of the sin in the garden. They are both naked and seemingly unashamed. Imagine what that would be like. That's even possible for us. But there's a sense in which the closest we can come to being naked and unashamed is through sexual union with our spouse. Again, imagine what it would be like to be naked and unashamed with someone, where you're naked and there are no nervous giggles, no internal self-consciousness, no comparing yourself to others, no questioning if your spouse is thinking about other people in your stead, no judgment of all. Think about that. Imagine what it would be like. That's what God intends for sex in marriage to be like. And there's a sense in which, in your wedding night, it will be the beginning of a journey of getting back to the Garden of Eden, a place where we are naked and unashamed in the presence of our spouse. Now, to be clear, anybody here that's married will know that your wedding night is not exactly naked and unashamed. That is a very vulnerable thing, to be naked for the very first time in front of your spouse. There will surely be many, many times of nervous giggles and so on. But over time... As your marriage goes on, you should become more and more comfortable. And in that sense, as you become naked and less and less ashamed, you are actually reversing the effects of the fall and Satan's attacks on humanity. You've probably never thought of sex as spiritual warfare, but it is. Both because it it reduces temptation, but it also pushes back the effects of the fall. You are doing God's work when you are having sex in marriage. Maybe you never thought about that. I don't think we just understand how sacred sex is. But sex isn't just sacred. It's also full of unspeakable pleasure. Just getting back to what we started with. I think many of us struggle to understand just how sacred and pleasurable sex can be together because we struggle to think that things can be both sacred and pleasurable. We are used to, in a church context, thinking, okay, it's either sacred or if it's pleasurable, it must be sinful. God says, no, no, no. Sacred and pleasurable actually go together. That's the beauty of it. Ultimately, the deepest and truest, most lasting pleasures all find their origin in God. God, again, created sex before sin entered the world. So then why do we try to engage in sex in Satan's twisted ways that only come into being after the fall? Ways that are always less satisfying and less lasting than the way God originally created it in the context of marriage. Every time you have an act of sexual immorality, you are settling for something lesser than. I hope you know that. I know Satan convinces you it's the best thing. It's actually way, it's way different than the the way God intended it. That's not near as fun. Don't settle for something lesser. Settle for God's best. In the Song of Songs, we see the Bible's clearest look at one of God's greatest gifts to the world, which is sex. And in that book, we see sex in all of its sacred and pleasurable glory. Before we look at some passages from the Song of Songs, I want you to pause for just a moment, and I want you to think about how amazing it is that the the book of the Song of Songs is actually in the Bible, because there are a lot of ancient texts that have nothing like this in there. 
It's easy for us to just get so used to the table of contents of Scripture that we actually forget how amazing it is that, that this book is in there. Remember, the Bible is God's special divine revelation for us as humanity. There were an infinite number of things that God could have said in there, but he only said a few. And the fact that he included the Song of Songs in that tells us it's very important. That is amazing. And what's more is, I think the way God included this book about sex in the Bible is beautiful. He didn't give us a treatise. He didn't give us a fact book or a picture book or an instruction manual. He gave us a passionate, erotic, beautiful love song that reminds us of the sacredness and wonder of sex. That's amazing. So, I want us to actually take a second and look at this amazing love song. This is probably the moment you guys are all dreading, but we're going there. So turn with me in your Bibles to Song of Songs. Song of Songs. Just kind of get there. We're going to flip throughout. And here is my kind of content warning for you. Be surprised. You will probably be surprised what you find in here. And we're going to talk about it because I think it's a good thing. As you turn there, let me give you just a little bit of context. Song of Songs is a love poem or a song written by either King Solomon himself or by another in his honor during his reign. And through its poetry, the book tells us of intense and passionate love between a man and his wife. Throughout the book, the man and the woman go back and forth, exclaiming their love for one another. So if you were to read through it, which you could do pretty quickly, there's only a few chapters, and it's poetry, so it's not filling a page you would find that it breaks it up between man and woman. So your, your Bible may have it labeled as man or woman or he or she. And it's broken up that way. There's this conversation almost happening together. And throughout their passionate words, we see an incredible picture of the beauty of sex and marriage. Over the course of the books of the scriptures, we see some notable and famous beginnings, introductions. For example, Genesis 1.1 has an intro that is world famous. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We all remember that one. Or think about the Gospel of John. It has a similarly famous introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But in my mind, I think Song of Songs might take the cake. Look with me, starting at verse 2. Again, this is in the Bible. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For, you, for your caresses are more delightful than wine. The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me into his chambers. That's how you begin a book. I did not start Unchaining the Lion that way, and I think I would have sold more copies if I had. From the very beginning of Song of Songs, we are introduced to a, a feast of sensual and sacred delight. And from the very beginning of the book, we are forced to play one of my favorite games in all of Bible reading, and it is this. Can you believe that verse is really in the Bible? So we're going to play this game. We're just going to read through, and we're going to say, can you believe that verse is really in the Bible? So for the next few minutes, as we play this very game, I'm going to read several passages from the Song of Songs for you. And as we read these scriptures, I want you to see just how beautiful and passionate and good God intends for sex to be in the context of marriage. So for our very first passage, turn with me to Song of Songs, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. We're going to read two, three verses here. This is the woman speaking, and she says this. While the king is on his couch, my perfume releases its fragrance. 
The one I love is a sachet of myrrh to me, spending the night between my breasts. The one I love is a cluster of henna blossoms to me in the vineyards of Engedi. Quick pause. First, as you read that book, you're going to notice a lot of mentions of flowers and apples and grapes and vineyards and wine. And there's a reason for that. It's because back in the day, those things were seen as aphrodisiacs. They were meant to excite sexual desire. And so as you, you see references to these things, it's easy for us as modern people to be like, why do they keep on talking about apples and flowers and all this perfume? It's because it was meant to excite sexual desire. This is meant to be an erotic thing. Second, I love how frank the language is. The woman is not ashamed of sex. She's not trying to beat around the bush or speak in euphemisms. She knows sex is a good and right thing, and she's excited about it. And I think one of the reasons that Christians often struggle to talk about sex is because we're embarrassed by it, and we still feel a little bit shameful when that topic comes up. We're only used to hearing about sex in a negative light, in a sinful light. And while, yes, sex is a private activity, I'm not telling you to go air your sex life out to the world. That's not my point. My point is that we shouldn't be embarrassed by it. It's a good gift from God. And I think one of the reasons we struggle in discipleship in terms of sex in the church is because we don't even know how to talk about it. We're so embarrassed by it. But sex in the context of marriage is beautiful, not shameful. It's part of the reason we're doing this message is because for some of you, you've never had someone in the church talk to you about sex. And I want to do it in a way that is as tasteful as I can, but gets at the beauty of sex and the sacredness of it. And again, part of all of this, you know, we see the sacredness of sex. Think back to when your parents had the talk with you. They were probably embarrassed. And in fairness, that's a hard conversation to have. But again, I think we'd be healthier if we were just honest about sex. So a little story about this, um, not about my own, to be clear. Uh, recently, I was at dinner, Carly and I were at dinner, with a couple that we adore, that we have done marriage mentoring with for several years um, since we started dating, and we did premarital um, in part with them. And um, we're at dinner with them, we check in every two or three months, and they just ask us hard questions and keep us accountable and encourage us. And they had just gotten back from sabbatical and uh, had a great time. And, and so, you know, I've got this sabbatical coming up uh, here in the spring, uh, just a few months from now. And I'd heard them talk about how they just had some really incredible experiences on sabbatical and deep conversations. And so just as, as I was thinking about the deep conversations they were talking about and just the life planning they were doing, I asked them, I said, okay, you know, what is the best thing we could, we could do on sabbatical? You know, and I, here I am, I'm ready for some, give me some deep questions to ask. What are things Carly and I need to be talking through and thinking about in terms of our marriage? And to my shock, the wife looks at me with all of this giddy joy and she says, the best thing you can do on sabbatical is have lots of sex. I was like, what? And of course I thought, maybe I heard her wrong. And so I look at her husband and he is sitting there with the biggest smile you've ever seen. And whether or not that is actually the best thing you can do on sabbatical, I think... The point is, I just loved how honest she was about it. It's in the context of marriage. We're doing marriage mentoring. We have a good relationship with them. And her being able to confidently and joyfully talk about that in a beautiful and respectful way, I just thought that was so incredibly important. She meant every word of it. I just think that's a beautiful thing. Sex was meant to bring couples together. It symbolizes their union. It chemically bonds them together. It excites passion and affection for one another. And it was given to us as a good gift from God. We should not be ashamed of sex in the context of marriage. And it is clear that the woman in the Song of Songs is not ashamed of it. She knows it's God's good gift. 
Next, let's turn to Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 9. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Try describing your lover like that and see how it goes. <laughs> Pretty weird, right? Quick story on this. Uh, when I was at Mizzou, I had the honor of leading this guy's Bible study. And uh, it was one of, one of just the coolest ministry experiences of my life. It was a great group. And uh, during that time of the Bible study, we had this guy, becomes a new Christian. He joins the Bible study. He had a pretty hard and sinful past and was ready to kind of get off on a new foot. And he had never dated a Christian girl. And uh, he starts coming to college ministry, he starts coming to group, and, and he wants to date a Christian girl. And he knows that Christian girls, in his mind, he's heard that they want guys who are leaders, um, guys who love the Bible and quote scripture, and guys that make their intentions clear. And so he kind of falls, he kind of has this crush develop of this one girl. And um, so he's trying to be intentional and asking her out. And he's trying to quote the Bible and he's trying to make his intentions clear. And so one day he shows up at my condo and uh, he says, I want you to read something before I give this letter to her. And I kid you not, this is a true story. The very first words I read said this. This is quoting Song of Songs 4-5. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of gazelles that feed among the lilies. And I very quickly told him, you cannot send her this. And we, we reworked the whole thing, took, took it out. And he was like, why are you taking the Bible out of here? Because I'm like, because you're not married to her and this is weird. Yeah, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. So often, I think one of the reasons the Song of Songs feels weird to us is because we see these descriptions that are just like, what are they talking about? The mare in Pharaoh's chariots, and you see twins and fawns, and it's like, what is going on here? And we can't imagine describing someone like that. But the moment we actually understand the context of the passage, it will all begin to make sense. So let me, let me do a little translation. What is the man getting at when he says to the woman, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Context is key here. Pharaoh did not have mares or female horses pulling his chariots. He only had male horses or stallions doing the work. And so the man in Song of Songs is essentially saying, I feel for you like a stallion feels when a mare walks in front of him. I don't know if any of you have grown up around horses or anything, but if you've ever seen a mare walk in front of a stallion, it is a very memorable moment. And I will not go into any more detail, but they're very excited. And so what the man here in Song of Songs, this is in the Bible, is saying that in the presence of his wife, it is like he is driven crazy. He can't even focus. She drives him mad. He has so much sexual tension and passion for her. In the context of marriage, that's in the Bible. And for all of us that don't know whether to laugh or giggle or like, that's really weird, that's really in the Bible, that reminds us God thinks pleasure is a good thing. He has given us sex as a good gift. He actually thinks sexual passion in the context of marriage is a good thing. And we can remember that. We don't have to be ashamed of that. Now look with me at Song of Songs chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Song of Songs chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. I quoted verse 5 a second ago, but we're going to read about 11 verses around it. It says this. 
How beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Behind your veil, your eyes are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats screaming down Mount Gilead. Your, this is what my friend's letters sound like, by the way. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from the washing, each one of you bearing twins, and none has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet cord, and your mouth is lovely. Behind your veil, your brow is like a slice of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, constructed in layers. Quick pause. That's not saying she has a big neck. It's saying that it's well-formed. That's what the Tower of David is. Beautifully formed. A thousand shields are hung on it, and all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will make my way to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the peak of Amana and from the summit of Sinair and Hermron, from the dens of the lions and the mountains of the leopards. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captured my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful your caresses are, my sister, my bride. Your caresses are much better than wine, and the fragrance of your perfume better than any balsam. Your lips drip sweetness like the honeycomb, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Notice something here. Notice that the man is not simply describing only the woman's breasts and her backside. That would be what a guy would do if he attempted to have no relationship, just wanted to take a lustful gaze, had no care about who that woman was, just saw someone walking the street, saw them walking in the room, and had no intention to care for her whatsoever. That's what a lustful gaze does. He only notices some of those things. This man, this husband, this lover, notices everything about his wife. He has attention to detail. He notices every single part of her. And again, we may not use the same language as the man and the woman in this book, but we ought to be able to learn a lesson about how to romance our spouses in ways that make them feel adored. This man is able to intimately and precisely describe every part of his lover's body. If we translated that into our modern language, it would sound something like, John Mayer's Your Body is a Wonderland. I have to guess, but I, I wouldn't know. I haven't tried. Yet, the description of the lovers are done more like poetry than profanity, and I think that's important. This man is not trying to be crass. He's not trying to make disgusting sexual comments. He is trying to be poetic and beautiful and unashamed by how in awe of the beauty of his wife he is. That's what it means to romance, to notice every detail, to notice the little things, and to be in awe of them. All of those little things. My prayer is that for those that will get married in this room, you may have a part of your body that you are self-conscious about, and your spouse, knowing that, one day would be able to praise you for it, be able to notice the little things and affirm you in those little ways. That's a beautiful and tender thing. This man is trying to be lovingly descriptive, and there's a big difference between that and being crass. Now turn with me to Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 6 through 12. It's going to start out with the man, and then it's going to jump straight to the woman. I'll try to make the marker here. The man says this, How beautiful you are, and how pleasant, my love, with such delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said I will climb the palm tree and take hold of the fruit. 
May your breasts be like clusters of grapes and the fragrance of your breath like apricots. Your mouth is like fine wine. And then quick pause, notice, it shifts immediately to the woman. He hasn't even finished her sentence. Probably your English Bible doesn't have a period here. It's got like a dash of some kind. And it's like she can't wait for him to finish his sentence. She has to jump in on the poetry as well. And she jumps in and she says this. She finishes his sentence by saying, your mouth is like fine wine flowing smoothly from my love, gliding past my lips and teeth. I am my love's and his desire is for me. Come, my love, let's go to the field. Let's spend the night among the henna blossoms. Let's go early to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine is budded, if the blossom has opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my caresses. That passage is full of sexual passion. And it is clear that this is a shared passion where the husband and the wife are even finishing one another's sentences in sexual anticipation. I mean, it's like they can hardly contain themselves. And this brings us to an important point of the book as we finish up looking at Song of Songs. Sexual passion for your spouse is not meant to be hindered, which is why three different times, note that, three different times in the Song of Songs, the woman tells the young women of Jerusalem to not awaken love before its time. Three times she says it over the course of the book. So it's a big deal. We were never meant to have to slam on the brakes because we're constantly overstepping our physical boundaries, which is why we shouldn't flirt around with sex or uh, simulate it with people we aren't married with. God did not design us to have to slam on the brakes. And, and I'm going to be honest, probably a lot of us in, in this room know that feeling of just having to push away. I'm like, okay, we shouldn't be doing this. We weren't meant to do that. The only reason we have to experience that is because we flirted way too close with the line. But God never intended you for you have to slam on the brakes. He intended so that in the context of marriage, you could be literally, the Song of Songs will say, drunk with love and passion, lovesick. So those brakes aren't slammed upon. He wants you to hit the gas. That's a big distinction. So it's why we should be so careful in our dating relationships. I know we hear about boundaries all the time in the church, but it's for good reason because you will miss out on something good that God has for you. And you shouldn't want to rob it from someone else. That person is not your spouse. Again, ultimately in marriage, we are meant to enjoy sex without boundaries and hindrances. And these people in this passage are swept up in sexual passion and tension, enjoying God's gift to the fullest. And God designed this as a good thing. Sexual pleasure is a good and right thing in God's eyes. And here's what I will say. It's going to be a little bit frank, but I had someone, they heard me talking about this message, and, and they said, are we really sure that God intends for there to be pleasure? Are we sure, are really sure that God actually thinks sex is a good thing? And what we know, to the best of our medical knowledge, is that for ladies, there's a part of your body that is intended for sexual pleasure alone. And God made that good and before the fall. So I don't say that to be crass, we're not gonna dwell on any of that, but I say that as a way of God actually created our bodies in part in the context of marriage for sexual pleasure, and it's a good thing. We don't need to be embarrassed by it. God gave us sex as a good gift and intends for us to use it within the boundaries of marriage. The Song of Songs shows us the beauty of sexual passion in marriage, and this is a beautiful reminder of God's good gift to us. So here's how I want us to close our time. We're We're gonna shift from Song of Songs here. And I want us to look briefly about how sex relates to the gospel and the goodness and glory of God. So first, very quickly, just as marriage 
in general, pictures the gospel. We've talked about that from Ephesians 5. So I also believe there is a sense in which sex does the same thing. Now, I want to preface this by saying that all analogies related to God and the gospel are imperfect. This is not a one-to-one thing. But in analogies, as God has them in the scriptures, I think there's a shadow of truth that we need to notice. So, first, I believe that sex can actually picture certain truths about God and the gospel in the process of procreation. I want to think about it. How did creation get here in the first place? It came out of a loving relationship, of a selfless and generous love in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And out of that selfless and loving relationship sprung forth all of creation. And similarly, in the selfless, loving act of sex, procreation and children come forth. Now, is that to say there's sex in the Trinity? No. But I think you have an idea of what I'm trying to get at. There is a shadow of truth here. Out of love, new life is created. This was true in the eternal reaches of the Trinity, and it is true in the intimate moments of husband and wife who are meant to picture the gospel of the triune God. So similarly, when people give their life to Jesus, when they fall in love with Jesus and become part of his bride, the church, new believers, new life should spring forth because they're sharing the gospel with all the world. You see the principle? Out of love, new life should come forth. In all cases here, the principle is the same. And then finally, last, last thing I want to look at here. Finally, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We probably cover this passage more than any other in this series. And we're going to see how sex relates to the gospel and the goodness of God. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 22. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present, her, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is meant to be a selfless and sacrificial relationship of love that pictures the gospel for all the world to see. And sex within marriage is meant to be a similar picture. So you see, one of the reasons I think we struggle to see this is that our culture treats sex as self-centered. Our culture says that we should satisfy our sexual desires whenever we feel like it. Prostitution has the same logic. And certainly pornography is completely self-centered and takes no consideration of the person on the other side of the screen. We are discipled by our world to believe that sex is primarily a self-centered activity. But the Bible speaks of sex in a very different way. 
The Bible speaks of sex as a selfless activity of service to our spouse. We are meant to put our spouse's desires first. We're not meant to put our desires first, but our spouse's desires first. And if we do put our desires first, we are actually making our spouse, even if sex is in the context of marriage, if we put our desires first, we make our spouse an object of our own masturbation. We're using them, but we're not loving them for who they are. The Bible tells us in sex, we should put our spouse's desires first. We should serve them selfishly. Again, Ephesians 5 tells us, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sex should be an activity of selflessness and loving service. Thomas Howard, writing about this, says the following. In the mystery of love, as God planned it, no one can figure out who is doing the giving and who the receiving. Real lovers know that the giving and receiving are a splendid and hilarious paradox in which, lo, the, the giving becomes receiving and the receiving becomes giving until any efforts to sort it out collapse in merriment and adoration. That's a good description of what sex is meant to be from the Bible. Sex should be an activity of selfless and loving service to our spouse. So, just really practical and frank tip. Guys, I think this would particularly apply to you. I'm going to challenge you to make this a rule for your marriage that barring special occasions, you are not intimate with your wife unless there is sufficient time for both of you to be served. If you were to follow that rule, I think it would totally transform your sex life. And just ask your wife one day how, what she thinks about that. I think she'll thank me. It's also here why sex starts in the kitchen. Why? Because when you seek to serve your spouse in your marriage, whether it's through acts of service like unloading the dishwasher, making dinner, doing the laundry, picking up around the house, writing sweet love letters, or getting the flowers, or so many other selfless acts, it will actually aid your marital sex life. And it will be a beautiful and a practical picture of the love of Jesus because you are showing that person that you will serve them and you will love them for more than what you can get from them. You love all of them and all of who they are and you love to sacrifice for them and serve them. And our selfless service results in joy and satisfaction. And this is true of sex, but is infinitely more true of the gospel. Think about the very first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It goes like this, what is the chief end of man? What is the core purpose of our lives? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And think about that, our main purpose in life is to glorify God and to serve and enjoy him forever. And this is why marriage and sex are such beautiful pictures of the gospel because they remind us that selfless and sacrificial service actually lead to greater joy. Think about that. And so the way I want to just tie all this together is to say this. As we said at the beginning, pleasure was God's idea. And he has given us so many good and pleasurable gifts. And I don't just mean sex. I know we've talked about that tonight. But he's given us so many more. He's given us things like deep conversations with good friends, good meals, beautiful sunsets, Celine Dion's music, and Kate's Kitchen's ranch dressing. Just to see if you're listening. 
All of these things are good and pleasurable gifts from God. And all good and pleasurable things in this life ultimately point back to the greatest pleasure, the most sacred pleasure, which is God himself. He is the ultimate desire of our souls. As Augustine famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Sex is nothing compared to the joy of God. And we know that sex will not exist as we know it in this life, in heaven, because Jesus says there will not be marriage in heaven except for the marriage of Christ and his bride. So at least as we know it in this life, sex will not exist in heaven. But God and his joy will be there. They will be in heaven. And so tonight, if you're single, you don't, you don't feel like at this moment there's the prospect of marriage. And if you're honest, you just feel like this whole sermon is just a whole exercise in telling me about good things that I can't have right now. I want to actually express to you that I, in one sense, you're not actually missing out on anything. Because in, in a real sense, you have access to a far greater pleasure than anything we have talked about tonight. Because you have access to God. He will be the thing that will satisfy you in eternity forever. It will be so much greater than even the best sex you could possibly imagine. Nothing satisfies us like God can. And the fact that our world can't think of pleasures greater than sex shows us just how small and sorry and lame their view of the world actually is. My college pastor once shockingly said in front of a room full of college students, he said that even the greatest orgasm on earth will not compare to the glories and joys we will feel in heaven. And he was right. Theologically, that is just true. God is far better than sex, and he loves us so much that he gave us sex. God is, God is good because he gives good gifts, but ultimately those gifts that he gives are meant to point us back to God, who is the ultimate pleasure, the ultimate joy in the universe. And so as we seek to honor God and the good gift of sex and marriage, may we not make sex itself a God, but instead be pointed back to our great God who came up with sex in the first place. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good gift of sex. We thank you, God, that you have given us joy and pleasure. Pleasure was your idea. And good gifts and good pleasures existed even before sin entered the world. And so I pray for my friends tonight, God, that they would be able to appreciate and respect and honor the good gift you've given us of sex in the context of marriage. Help us settle, not for Satan's best, but help us go for your best. Help us fight temptation. Help us heal from trauma, God, that we might, if you have called us to marriage, we might enjoy the good gift you have given us in sex. But more importantly than anything else, would you remind us, God, that you are the ultimate joy of our souls. You're the only one that can satisfy, and it is in glory. You will be the only one that we will have. So God, help us not mistake the gift uh, as a God, but help us be pointed back to you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.